0: Okay, so before I dive into tonight's topic, um, I just want to check in if there's any practice questions out there, anything um, that's coming up for you. Could be just from your daily practice or what we're doing tonight, what we just did.
1: I've heard teachers ask like you know notice what it feels like when you're released from a thought as comparing it to being in thought and it seems like to me it was obvious that once I was released from a thought there was a little more openness less mm-hmm. just less uh, tightness in my body but I didn't I never knew if the instruction if you're, you're supposed to create like a Better than, or is this just another thing? Or, yeah, just notice. It's not like a good or bad thing. Because to me, it seems quite much a preferred state to be not lost in thought. Yeah. yeah. But it's always just what's it like? So I, I just can't tell if this is just like a, you need to just notice it, or is it an obvious thing to have a judgment of well, this <clears throat> seems to be You a, a
0: I mean, a judgment whether we're in thought or not, or yeah, yeah.
1: like clearly being not sort of caught by the thought feels yeah. better, yeah. but there's no real, when they, when they give that instruction, there's no real further instruction.
0: Yeah, I mean, generally, uh, the way we'd go about it, you know, at least from Tibetan Buddhist perspective, what, what I've been trained in is, um, you know, your first training in shamatha, you're training in a mind of calm abiding, mm-hmm. where you're, Basically, cultivating awareness and cultivating stillness in the body and, and mind, and so part of that stillness means, you know, it depends on the interpretation. Some of it can mean as the as the, the stillness of the thinking mind sort of starts to slow down, but it can also mean the stillness that starts to happen underneath the thinking mind. So, ultimate, so so that's kind of the starting point, right? Then, at a certain point, when we enter insight practice or sort of vipassana, and sometimes certain traditions are combining those two at the same time. You're more looking into the nature of something, how something is. So shamatha, calm abiding, is like the prep of what leads us. So most meditation is in the calm abiding category, right? And then a lot of us don't really move on to the Vipassana uh, or insight styles of meditation. And then we kind of stay in that. And then then it gets kind of weird after a while if we only stay with that because... Then it has the sense that like there's this thing that's peaceful, and that's without thought, and there's this thing that's uh, not peaceful, and that's with thought, and ultimately that's a that's a mistake. But exactly, it's a dualistic sort of problem. But in the short term, it's useful, right? Because because what you said is true. When normally what is creating overload, you know, stress. Uh, Overwhelm for us, as well as sort of excessive cortisol releasing the body, is overthinking and ruminating too much in problem, right, and sort of dilemmas that, that are up for us. So, so first, for just in the beginning, it's just really helpful to get some space, right, so that's completely, it's totally useful, but then we should know, and sort of, again, like as a Buddhist teacher, I feel it's my job to say, well, there is something after that as well, right? Which is being able to see into the nature of a thought. So some practice we, practices we eventually do are more looking into, so you, you watch the mind in stillness, meaning when there's no thought, and you also watch the mind in movement when there is thought happening, right? And so one would first cultivate stillness just to have some strength, a little bit of muscle awareness, right? Awareness, uh, yeah. Then, you don't try to control the thinking mind. You just let it run, but you watch. But that's really hard in the beginning. Right. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. I think that, that release your your feeling is also a release of fixation. Right. So so from a ultimate Buddhist perspective, we would say it's not the thoughts that bind us, it's actually how we're relating to those, right. our reaction to those thoughts that's binding us.
1: Thank
0: you. Yeah. It's a good question, yeah.
1: Yeah, because they never, like, I should have asked. I'm just like, am I <laughs> supposed to, like, because when I am released, I'm like, I don't know if this, yeah, this is what I'm, this is the default, I don't look, like this is this, this is why we're doing it, this is what we're coming to, but it, I, it's always, just know that, you know, I, I, it's not clear, because I've been in blues, so I don't know. Yeah.
0: It could be because you just like you've had access to different styles yeah. as well and traditions yeah. and sometimes that gets murky yeah. because not everyone is going about it the same way. Right. Not that they're completely different things but it's sort of like we look at it like a mountain and right. so you know in the Zen tradition more or less unless it's a heavily a Koan tradition they're going to say, say just sit and look at the wall <laughs> you know and, and the process of Zen practice is Zazen right. and Shikantaza where you're, you're just sitting and then over time you know, as you're interacting with the teacher in a certain way, the practice opens and then you check with them. In the Theravada tradition, you know, they have a path, the four foundations and and, and, uh, Satipatthana and the Satipatthana Sutra and, you know, a a breath as well as the starting place. But then later down the road, like in the fourth foundation, it moves into a lot of analysis of the four noble truths, of the aggregates. Um, And then Tibetan Buddhism, similar, like we have many different avenues. Tibetan Buddhism doesn't have a singular way we move through. But either way, it's good to have a path because we're kind of following a trajectory of how things are developing for us. Yeah, but it's pretty normal. And the you know, there was kind of a there was an article was it in Tricycle or where I don't know. It was a bunch of um, publishers like Dharma book publishers talking about the decline of like how traditional Dharma books are declining in sales, but what are rising is sort of modern commentaries, um, which in a way, it's okay because it's just showing, you know, we want bridges to these, this stuff. We want accessible things. But at the same time, if we're only accessing modern commentaries, they're often hodgepodge's of a lot of things. And they can be insightful, but it's sort of like a fortune cookie problem, where it's like, if you crack open 10 fortune cookies, you're like, awesome, like, you know? <laughs> you know, like, you have 10 awesome things that it says, but do you have a path? Not really. You just have ten insightful things, so so traditionally in Buddhism, we would you know have access to a teacher and then follow a path of study and practice and and study and, and practice integrate. We do them together, so that could be a little bit of the issue, yeah Thank you. but that's not uncommon yeah. Anyone else? I like that I'm going remember that one, the fortune cookie <laughs> it's like uh, the the Instagram of. Dharma. <laughs> it's just like, oh, yes, that quote and this quote and that quote. You stick them around your room. No offense. And that's your path. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so my idea was to talk about uh, transforming problems into happiness and I started to search around, you know, I tend to just give more spontaneous talks these days based off of, of my study and practice over the years. But sometimes I like to rely on traditional writings or texts and sort of comment on those. This is actually how we, Buddhist teachings are normally taught. Uh, they're normally taught from a text. And, and when a teacher goes off and does their own kind of spontaneous talk, um, it's, it's more from experience. Uh, but sometimes when we have a text, we have something kind of we can follow together and we have something we can move through. And so I was looking around and I uh, wasn't sure if I was going to do more of a spontaneous talk or follow kind of a, a previous, excuse me, writing or text. And I found a text with the name, Transforming Suffering and Happiness, right? So it was almost the exact same title. Uh, Transforming Problems from S- into S- Happiness. That's the title of one of my teacher's books, uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche. I just like the title, so I used it for this talk, Uh, but this text we're going to use here that I'm going to kind of base my talk off of, um, it's a slightly different take, because he says here, the author, transforming suffering and happiness, so I thought this is going to be really interesting, yeah, and my idea is rather than kind of rush through this, because it's not that long, it's about 12 pages, but there's a lot here to cover, so what I think I'm going to end up doing is like part two, and perhaps even a part three, so like, uh, next month will be part two and uh, the month after that will be part three because the part on transforming happiness, I think we really need nowadays. And most people think transforming happiness. What do you mean by that? We'll get to it, <laughs> but uh, I think it's important and it doesn't come until the end of it. But anyways, so this, this text, um, it's written by a Tibetan author from the 19th century named uh, Do Do-Drup- Drupchen Jigme Tempenima who's a really famous, um, teacher from East Tibet, who, if any of you are familiar with Tibetan Buddhism, he was a student of Mipam Rinpoche, Jamgon Kontrol, as well as um, uh, Pacho Rinpoche, who were probably three of the most famous uh, Tibetan Buddhist masters from the 19th century. There was kind of, in the 19th century in Tibet, the um, East Tibet had a resurgence of what we call like a non-sectarian movement, because Tibet, for all its goodness, it brought into the world. It also had you know, problems, of course, like every other culture, and some of the problems were around sectarianism. So we have four or five main lineages in Tibetan Buddhism, and sometimes they would fight with each other or say, like, "Hey, we're more, you know, we know better than you, right?" And then there's kind of some kind of scholar battle or a battle between monasteries. So in the nineteenth century uh, and before that as well, but there was a strong movement to have more of a non-sectarian approach, and so this this teacher Tempe Nima was part of that. Um, and I also just was reading it, and I really, really like it. I think it's very applicable to our lives here. So you can find it. I didn't really announce it because I wasn't sure until yesterday. You can find it on a, on a website called Lotsawa House, L-O-T-S-A-W-A, and maybe I'll post it somewhere, and you can check it out. And it's just free. It's just a download. So Lotsawa House is a group of Western translators who translate Tibetan texts for free and put them online. And this one's on there. I wish i could have printed them out and given to you, that might have been helpful too. But anyways, I thought to just start on this. And so I'm going to, I'm not going to go through it line by line, but I'll go kind of chunk by chunk through this and talk about the main themes. So what we would say is this particular writing and what I'm going to talk about is within a corpus of teachings called Lojong in Tibetan. So some of you have already heard about that. I gave a little bit of a talk. Was it the last one or the one before it on Lojong on, 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 uh, working with self-obsession, right? And I taught on Lojong with that. So Lojong, in Tibetan means mind training. And so it, but it refers to a specific sets of teachings coming from uh, Kadampa masters, that was one lineage in Tibetan, like the, believe maybe 10th or 12th century, something like that, uh, where a lot of, there was a lot of writings done on how to transform suffering into the path to enlightenment, how to work with compassion and loving-kindness in a more direct way. And a lot of it centers around exchanging oneself for others, meaning seeing not just our own value, but seeing the value of others. And transforming uh, our own inner self-obsession and self-cherishing by seeing, also seeing others as more important. There's a, these teachings are a little more tricky these days because so much of us suffer from low self-worth and just not much value of ourselves. So, when we often apply these, it can be tricky in the beginning because we might devalue ourselves more in the process. And that's not really the intention. What I like about this text is he focuses first on a different approach, but it is within that Lojong category. And there's hundreds of texts on Lojong. So some of you may have heard of The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva. So that's a Lojong text. Um, One, Pema Chodron has written some famous stuff on Lojong, like commenting on it. A text called The Seven-Point Mind Training is a really famous one by Geshe Chikawa. But anyways, um, so this text starts out with a homage, and 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 it's a homage to the Buddha of compassion, Avalokiteshvara. And usually when when someone's writing a traditional writing, they'll first pay homage to either the Buddhas in a form of compassion and love or in a form of wisdom, depending on what they're going to emphasize in the text. So because this text is more about opening up those areas of our heart where the heart is closed, first he's kind of praising the Buddha of compassion, right? This is a traditional way to do it. And then, he, and then he puts an intent to complete this writing where he says, I'm going to put down here a partial instruction on how to use both happiness and suffering as the path to enlightenment. And he separates it into two parts here. So first we're gonna talk about how to use suffering as the path, right? Or otherwise transforming problems into the path. Then second, he's going to talk about how to use happiness as the path, which we probably won't get to tonight. Then within this realm, Buddhism has two aspects or two kinds of ways we can approach practice. We can, ap- we can approach through the relative, meaning using the conceptual mind, using our normal habitual, uh, I should say, retraining some of our habitual patterns with concept, with the intellect with thinking and then there's what's called through the absolute or the ultimate and this more refers to an investigation in regards to Brett's question on meditation, an investigation in the nature reality and so Vipassana practices are usually the practices opening up that, right? So here it's not so much of a focus on absolute truth and, and using that in order to uh, work with the path, it's more focused on the relative and this is really useful because what are we stuck in most of the day? Our thoughts, right? And so here we're kind of learning some means to use the thinking mind in a skillful way. So we train our mind through Lojong practice. And you'll see some of the verses he's talking about, but some very, some just examples so you can get your head around it now. You know, I might use on the subway, just a mind training of putting myself in the shoe, putting myself in the shoes of someone else in the car. So instead of being stuck in my shitty feeling of it's sweaty and it sucks on here and I'd rather be anywhere else, I try to put myself in the shoes of another and think, hmm, I wonder what it's like for them, right? And immediately, not only does that get me out of my suffering, but it opens my heart. It opens compassion, it opens love, right? So that's a really mini example of how we apply these kinds of teachings. So I was using the thinking mind there, but then I was using it to actually evoke or shift my experience. So his first verse here, uh, when in regards to how he's suffering as the path to enlightenment, right? He says, if we make a habit out of perceiving only the suffering, then when even the smallest problem comes up, it will cause enormous anguish in our mind, right? So this is kind of the main theme that he starts going on again and again. So we can see this how often do we come into a room or come into a situation or me on the subway and just immediately drawn to the suck, right? (laughs) Or I should say, kind of we go more to the cynicism or pessimism around a situation. So in one way, we could say, well, that's just how I feel, or that's just what I think, or that's just how this is. But in actuality, it's the habit we're training in. It's the habit we probably applied the day before, right? And it's the habit that because we're engaging in it again, we'll apply the day after. And so first what we have to do is come to an awareness or conclusion that the mind is malleable, right? So of course, like now if we we like science stuff and that sort of proves stuff to us, if that's your bag, um, I'm not so (laughs) fond of it in the sense that I think there's other means to prove how things are interacting. Uh, we can also use our subjective experience but either way uh, so modern neuroscience you know has this concept of neuroplasticity plasticity that the brain changes right and we can learn new things all the way up into old age right it's not just we're not just fixed into a habit it's very malleable and so the Buddhist path has been saying this for a long time that actually our minds are changeable and when we Put effort into awareness of our experience, and then using that awareness to train in new habits, we can actually affect whether we suffer or whether we're happy. Right. So that's the whole premise here. Now, our sitting meditation on the cushion, like something we just did, can then be extremely useful. And that's this is actually what mindfulness really is from a Buddhist perspective: mindfulness of like, ooh, let me see how, if I can open. Oh. You can't really sleep. You know, and we, we go through this, that's nice, it's like a training, not so useful. It's actually quite, it's a little bit hedonist, actually. You know, mmm, it's so delicious. I love the zero-calorie vanilla flavor, you know, <laughs> whatever that is, right? That's not really the mindfulness we're looking for. We're looking for the mindfulness here. Now, again, you don't have to believe in it. I know majority of you here aren't Buddhist, but um, we have to check what's going to actually be Useful and have the most efficacy for us in our life for creating a happy life And so here the premise is that we use mindfulness to become aware of our habits to become aware of where am I getting stuck? Where am I getting bound into my habits of thought into my habits of emotion and behavior? But instead of the normal attitude of well, then I'm just gonna push all that shit over here, right? That doesn't work We have to face it. We have to connect with it. We have to learn how to respond differently Right. So, in a way, a lot of these, this specific verse here. If we make habit, out of, if we make a habit out of perceiving only the suffering, then when even the smallest problem comes up, it will cause enormous anguish in our mind. Really, it's pointing to becoming more aware of our reaction, so we can choose to respond rather than just react out of habitual pattern. Right. So the next line here says the reason so this is because the nature of any perception or idea be it happiness or sorrow is to go is to grow stronger and stronger the more we become accustomed to it so like i said some of this is very practical and obvious right but are we you know the reason i'm saying it is because we have to remember to apply this to our thoughts throughout the day to our behavior throughout the day and that anything we're actually engaging in will become reinforced and sometimes It's really tough. Like, we don't know how to get out of that cycle, right? We might be in a cycle of sort of negative self-talk, or we might be in a cycle with a partner where every word we say to each other triggers an argument, (laughs) even if it's just about, you know, nothing, right? And so part of this is awareness, but part of this is also coming into the body. So I'm going to bridge this text with our modern experience. And that's why tonight I started the practice with... Uh, An embodied practice and not just an embodied mindfulness, but a mindfulness that allows a mindfulness that connects with feeling emotion sensation in the body as it is and so this can be a a really powerful preliminary for us um, as modern folks of Just coming into how things are not thinking or ruminating about it, but coming into the body connecting and allowing things to express themselves and then we we work on this quality where we don't have to necessarily follow everything that comes up but we also don't have to reject it right so we're working with not rejecting we're, we're not bypassing the experience in the body but we're also aware so we're attempting not to get hooked or caught up right i mean of course we will it's a, it's a practice so this can be the i would say that is the preliminary for the work this text is talking about right because sometimes what we can do is I don't know about you, but I'm really good at you know, bypassing emotions, bypassing feelings, sensations with thinking, right? Where I could just apply this, but all the shit that I need to be with is right underneath. So again, the practice I found most helpful is to drop into the body and feel and do that again and again and again. So what I'll add to my example from before is often when I'm on the subway, before I apply the practice of putting myself in someone else's shoes, I first come into my body, literally, like, and just drop the the story, this sucks, I'm sweaty, why the hell did I move to New York? I wanna go back to California, whatever the story is, right? Uh, I just drop into the body and I allow that shitty feeling to be what it is, right? And then I meet it, and then There's a little bit of, there's vulnerability there. There's a little bit, it's not comfortable, but I'm valuing myself in that very moment because I'm not ignoring or pushing away what's there. Then from there, as things kind of calm a little bit, then I can invite in a new perspective, which is that, hey, hey guy, like you are not the only one here, right? This is full of people, this subway, right? So anyways, so we have to be careful not to do that too quickly. We have to also honor what we're going through so then he says so we don't realize uh, he's talking about this habit that will get stronger and stronger the more we reinforce it right if we don't realize that it all depends on the way in which mind develops this habit and instead we put the blame on external objects and situations alone he says the flames of suffering aggression and so on will spread like wildfire without end and then he calls this all appearances arising as enemies. So I don't know about you, but you know when you have those days where it's just like everyone seems pissed and angry and just sucks, right? Have you ever had that experience where you turn back to your mind and you notice how angry you are and how that's reflecting everything and then the same, you're in the same place a few hours later or the next day, completely different, right? I I came back to, I was in, was teaching at some retreats in Colorado the, the past three weeks, and I got back to New York last week. And um, I was kind of like in a kind of a slow mode, you know, slow uh, slow moving. And I was like, wow, New Yorkers seem like they're walking really slow. What happened, you know? And I realized it was just me. It was just my perception, right? And i shifted. So anyways, so if we, if we learn to practice like this, if we learn to be, use mindfulness to become aware of our habit patterns and to learn to respond in a different way, um, then all appearances will not arise as enemies. So he said in order for this to happen, first, this is the very first thing, we have to get rid of the attitude of being entirely unwilling to face any suffering ourselves, and second, to cultivate the attitude of actually being joyful when suffering arises. That might sound counterintuitive, and we'll get to that second aspect probably next time. But the first aspect here, what he calls dropping the attitude of being entirely unwilling to suffer, this is a huge one. So, I already kind of talked about it a little bit or mentioned it in the sense that when we allow ourselves to come into the body and into our experience, the reason I say this as a bridge for us, kind of modern uh, city dwellers is often, at least if you're educated in this country, unless you're like Montessori or some fancy something, we don't learn how to work with emotions. We don't learn how to be in the body with something. We learn how to think about our experience, right? We learn how to use thinking as the main tool for manipulating and making things better. Now this is awesome because it can create, you know, a nice material reality, but it can also really screw us up and cut us off from our emotions, right? Hence why I think being a psychiatrist is a very good gig these days, right? Or maybe a meditation teacher, I'm not sure. So, and I don't want to equate those two, but either way. So, so anyways, so that's why it's so pivotal that we learn to get into the body, right? And not just feel it, but actually what he's saying here. Dropping the attitude of being unwilling to suffer. Another kind of cultural thing here that I've noticed, and again, this is just for you to think on uh, for yourself, I mean, it's not a judgment on anybody in this room, is that we have this kind of cult of comfort in, in, in this culture. And it's almost, it's, it's sort of pervasive to this extent we don't even realize how it is. Like I try, you know, when we, when I went to Nepal and, and lived there for a little while and studied there, it was so hard because <laughs> it's just like you're in concrete buildings in the winter and nothing ever gets warm at all right and the pollution and all the other stuff i can complain about but i'm you know just being used to a level of comfort here it was really hard to accept that for a long period of time and i really had to work with that as a training and i would say as we get older it just gets worse right because we need more the body wants more and more comfort so here this can be also a habit that we retrain just looking at that looking at the mind looking at. Is it true? Do I really need that level of comfort? How much is that something that's a want and not a need necessarily? So this is one way we start to get used to suffering and an acceptance of just what life is gonna give us. And again, this is just a major principle on the Buddhist path. It's the first thing the Buddha said. So he attained enlightenment, didn't wanna talk, and then people bugged him to talk (laughs) enough times. That he wouldn't give a talk to the first five disciples, as the story goes. And that first teaching was on the Four Noble Truths. The first truth being the truth of suffering, or the truth that life has pain within it, right? And this isn't to then dwell on that pain, or dwell on that suffering, or become cynical. It's to wake up, so we don't ignore how things actually are, right? So here he calls that dropping the attitude of being entirely unwilling to suffer. So he says this, Think about all the depression, anxiety, and irritation we put ourselves through by always seeing suffering as unfavorable, something to be avoided at all costs. So he says, now think about two things, how useless this is and how much trouble it causes, right? So he's asking us to really reflect on this fact that when we're going through a problem, but we're resisting that problem or we're resisting that suffering, is that helping? Right? That's the question we're asking here. So in, in Buddhism, some of you are familiar with the Theravada tradition, or maybe Josh has talked about it before, it's kind of like the double arrow problem. So it comes from a story of the Buddha where someone was shot with an arrow and came to the Buddha, you know, the Buddha supposedly had clairvoyance and, and asked, so where is this, who shot this arrow? Where is he from? Where is his village? What's his mother's name? Like that kind of thing. The Buddha was like, don't you want to pull it out? Like, isn't that like your, your main goal? Isn't that the, the best thing here? And so the Buddha used it as a way to talk about how we interact with suffering, where rather than getting interested in what's causing the suffering and then remedying that, we want to get all involved in the suffering, right? And we want to create drama around it. So essentially, that's what he's saying here. We have to reflect on how useless it is um, to avoid pain, to avoid suffering, because obviously it's, in, it's inevitable, right? Then he says, say to yourself, so again, he's using all these prompts, so we're kind of using mm, ways to speak to ourselves, and again, gently, where he says, from now on, whatever I have to suffer, I will never become anxious or irritated, right? So again, it's taking on a kind of confidence or a forbearance to face life's inevitable ups and downs, right, and to, to, to grow some strength around that. Then he says, first, let's look at that first part of how useful it is. And so he uses this, this reasoning coming from Shantideva in the way of the Bodhisattva, the text I mentioned before, where he says, if we can do something to solve a problem, then there's no need to worry or be unhappy about it. If we can't, then it doesn't help to worry or be unhappy about it either. Right? So it's saying, if you can do something, go ahead and do something. Why worry about it? If you can't do anything, why worry about it? So we're cultivating that kind of attitude right? We're cultivating. So, so what I want to emphasize is this isn't just going to come about by thinking, that's nice, or like fortune cookie, awesome, like, you know, goes in the garbage or drawer. We have to repeatedly think on this a lot. So that, that particular verse coming from Shantideva, I, oh, I think about that pretty much on a weekly basis, you know? And, I, and the mind actually, when we become habituated to it, the mind can become really fast at doing that, where we don't even have to think it. It's just sort of a go-to attitude. Can I do something? No. Okay, chill the fuck out. You know what I'm saying? Like We have this response like that and that communication. But like I said, that communication has to be built off of a healthy sense of self, a healthy sense of uh, confidence or inner self-confidence. Otherwise, it can go the wrong way. So I just got a few more and then I'll I'll wrap it up, uh, the talk for tonight. So he says next, so while we're dominated by anxiety, even if the tiniest problem becomes extremely difficult to cope with because we have the additional burden of mental discomfort and unhappiness. So again, he's alluding to what I talked about, that double arrow problem where we have the first uncomfort of something unfortunate happening to us, like let's say getting sick, but then we have the double arrow or the double suffering of getting all bummed out worried about that right so that we can work with so a lot of our meditation practice is for first affecting the mind right because sometimes we can't help the body just gets sick right people dump us (laughs) sometimes right we lose jobs all that kind of stuff we can't help that always but we can help our reaction to it so that's what the text will go into more he gives a really interesting example here, which I think is pretty cool, because he's using kind of logical reasoning here, because we're, we're in the realm of concept and using helpful concepts. So he says, for example, trying to get rid of desire and attachment for someone we find attractive while continuing to dwell all the while on their attractive qualities. Right? He said this would be in vain. So it's sort of like when we're trying to get over someone, who we just broke up with, but we just continually reflect on what we love about them and what we miss about them, it doesn't help at all. right? So actually in in some Buddhist practices at that point, we would meditate on all their bad qualities, right? Mm -hmm. Because it'll reduce our attachment. Actually, I was a monk for nine years and I tried it. It's a hard practice to actually, I don't know why I had such a hard time with it. And it was helpful sometimes. and you know, nuns would do the same thing. So, so, whether it's a man or a woman or whatever, you, you reflect on the, the unattractive parts of a body in order to reduce your sexual desire, right? So, you, you imagine like someone's body flipped inside out, and then you think, do I still want to have sex with that person, right? And usually the answer is no. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's yes, but that's, that's when you're really in it, you know? <laughs> Anyways, joking. So anyways, that's kind of along the lines of here, right? So we have to pay attention to the mind and see where we're getting stuck in ruminating in the same process again. And like I'm suggesting just in my own commentary off of this, is sometimes we have to cut the thought rumination and go to the body and just be with the feeling, be with what's the underlying cause that's triggering the thought rumination. Because there usually is one, right? So then he says at the end of this uh, part here, so as, in the, so as in the instructions called sealing the doors of the senses, don't latch on to all kinds of mind main concepts about your suffering. Learn instead to leave the mind undisturbed in its own natural state. Bring the mind home, rest there, and let it find its own ground. So this is a really beautiful statement here. Um, it's actually talking about the nature of mind. So it's something I'll go into at another time. But essentially, um, maybe one way we can relate to this here is when we settle the mind into practice, like what we did at the beginning of tonight, when we choose to drop into the body and just relate to things as they are, including let, letting the mind just be natural. But natural here doesn't mean ruminating in thoughts. It doesn't mean sort of continuing to... to uh, habituate to something that's causing us suffering. It means just being with it as the ground. And he says, over time, as we leave the mind undisturbed, we'll come into its own natural state. He says, bring the mind home, right? And here home means its actual, its its nature or its underlying empty quality. It's what we call the mind's home in Buddhism. So we rest there and then it finds its own ground. And sort of paradoxically, when we're talking about uh, the mind finding its own ground, I mean it finds its own non-ground, and then it's actually truly settled. This is really talking about more advanced ultimate nature practices. So anyways, um, I think I'll stop there and just open it up for Q&A or, or discussion, the next section is, is called Cultivating the Attitude of Being Joyful When Suffering Arises. <laughs> so this is really getting into the Lojong territory. And, it's, and it goes through a lot of different ideas here. So next time I'll cover this. And it just gives us a lot of different ways to use suffering on the path when it arises. So anyways, any, any thoughts? <laughs> Reflections? Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, I and mean, I guess the specific thing that they were describing was right like taking monks into a graveyard for them to watch I mean misogyny is
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um I mean you you could reverse it monks yeah. into a graveyard in or to create an aversion to, to
2: women and to see and like bring out their volumes and watch Which seems sort of like like the sort of kind of diff, I don't know. It's like a defeat, and then it seems like it, it sort of contradicts the idea of recognizing one's you know own desires and one's own feelings, and it almost sounds like like in some cases it's just not possible to just recognize that and sit with that and move on, or you have to create this aversion. It seems um, I don't know, it seems a little counter sort of
0: dissonant to you are just accepting and accepting. oh, that's interesting yeah, so, so maybe what will clarify it is um, Buddhist practices has like a lot of different skillful means and they're not all equal in the sense like some are more so that's more of a training wheels practice so it's sort of like for someone who has a lot of desire and they can't just rest with the desire and let it be, right? In that last verse, that's what he was advising, right? It wasn't advising to go watch a body decompose. What can be helpful in the in the meantime is is creating a little bit of distance between something. So, so you know, this is a, I always use the example like when we, when we break up with someone, most of us don't go hang out with that person all the time. Just it would be silly. It would be like torture for the both people. So we create a little distance. So that can just be a skillful temporary thing. Not an ultimate thing. A temporary thing. Then when there's enough distance, the person heals a little bit. And then there's, it's no big deal. They can see the person and then you know, they can just gently come to the body or with mindful awareness, like you said, just accept how things are. So it just depends where someone's at. So they're just skillful means for different stuff, yeah. So, you know, we use that all the time in our life. Like, how often do we sit there and watch Fox News? Not that often, right? I don't know. I don't want to see everyone in the room. (laughs) Why? Because it pisses. You know, if if we don't believe in the values they're portraying on there, it pisses us off. So, a really good. So you know where you are. Actually, I would say a good Dharma practice is you can check your practice by watch Fox News for like four hours and see what, what arises, right? And if you're kind of like, oh, poor guys, I feel bad, like you have compassion for them, really good, it means your practice is, is going good. So, you know, like that, that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, so we have to see things within their own categories, because sort of Buddhist practice offers a lot of different skillful means, just because we're all at different places in our practice and availability as a human being, of what we can work with, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah,
2: it does. But I so it's it's kind of like the extreme of like take the, the breakup situation, you know, and creating distance. Space is one thing, that actually,
0: A version of it. Yeah, of what you're yeah, talking like about. Like yeah, focusing
2: on their through negative, you know, their negative qualities. Yeah, almost creating like a, um,
0: a repulsed state. Yeah. Again, it, you know, if you don't feel the draw to that, then it might not be a practice for you. You know, you can use other means. For some people, um, I think it works well, but it also isn't like, you're not creating a version like a hatred. You're just, you know, like I said, it's temporary. And then at a certain point, that person doesn't need that anymore. They don't have a version or attachment. You see, they kind of upgrade out of both. But for some people, I've, I've heard people say it's useful for them. Monks and nuns, not just men, like nuns as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, one nun I know, she would take new monks and nuns to go see autopsies, you know? And it's also, actually, I would say this because we're missing this point. A majority of those practices in the monastic tradition, they're actually for oneself. They're not for having aversion towards someone else. They're actually for, like, thinking of one's own body like that, which, again, is not a popular notion in our kind of, you know, overly (laughs) health-conscious you know, body-loving culture, right? But it's to, to, to lessen the attachment for the body. So again, it's just, a, it's just a provisional means. It's one thing we could do. But of course, another thing we can do is watch the desire. So if we know how to meditate, we watch the mind of desire. We watch the mind of aversion. And when it loosens, that's the goal. The goal is to actually, like, go beyond our biases, right? That's what everything's used for. Yeah, good question, Um,
3: let's see, I was thinking about that, I was wondering about the sort of moment when, like, using your example of being on the subway, um, the moment of, like, catching yourself, like, yeah. I, I think of, like, getting ahead of the curve, I try to, like, that's kind of how I think about it. <laughs> yeah, me it. too, yeah. And yeah. so, like, one way of thinking about it would be like, okay, walking down the stairs into the subway, you're like, I know it's going to be like this, so I can be prepared to deal with that. Yeah. but then but that's sort of in your example like that doesn't happen it's sort of like you're there and it's like hitting you how uncomfortable you are and you're in that for a while so what's the like you talked about like that feeling of like yeah. oh, man that sucks and then the thing and then what you do to sort of like change that relationship to it but what's the spark that's like oh I'm doing that
0: that's I easy. What right? I could do. you just answered your question yeah. mindfulness yeah yeah so mindfulness the 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 word actually means remembrance yeah. it's not the meditation they just use that as a catch all in the west yeah. so it means remembering the practice so that moment you're going to train you know hopefully we've trained enough in enough moments to be like oh yeah i'm getting stuck here and then we apply the practice right
3: so then if, do you feel like after after a certain amount of that of doing that it comes earlier and that you won't even need to get in that and remember yeah for sure hardest part it's like i can reflect back on something like oh yeah i was doing that but like in in the like midst of it it's like that remembering is just like less than it used to be but it's oftentimes just blocked out by all the cloudiness of being in the middle of
0: it yeah and 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 thanks for saying that because it's probably most of us are in that category and that's perfectly fine because that's how the training works it's sort of like five, ten, or maybe like a half day later, we're like, oh, yeah, I just got really angry at that person for no reason. And We're like, maybe that wasn't so great. Then the next time, a few hours later, the next time, an hour later, the next time, five minutes later. So that's how it works because it's sort of like um, we have no choice but to just work with where we're at. But when we apply the practice, it works, but it doesn't always work like the way we're In a perfectionist kind of way, where it's like, it's gonna just immediately, everything's gonna change. So I think that's awesome uh, that it's five minutes. And then slowly, if you keep doing that again and again, like he's saying, habituate, it'll just get less and less Mm -hmm. until you're, I would say you can prepare for it, but it's also like awareness just becomes pervasive after we meditate a lot. And you're just in awareness all the time. So it's sort of like you're just there. And you're present, but it's not a big heavy there, or like, I have to, every step has to be mindful like that. It doesn't have to be like uber mm-hmm. rigid. Um, and then there's an ability to recognize right, how, how things are. And that upgrades and upgrades and upgrades into this more ultimate truth I was talking about earlier, where we start to recognize not just the relative experience, but the nature of that relative experience, which is that it's not fixed, it's not permanent. Always changing, and so we can't find something. It's like trying to grab space. So eventually, a meditator she reaches out and can't she can't grab space any can't grab it anymore. Then we're starting to really find freedom. That's what Buddhism is talking about as real freedom, yeah. which is actually the good news. It's an inherent quality of all of us, whether we're Buddhists or not. It's just we have to familiarize to it. Yeah, that's a good question.